Come on in and have a seat. And grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. So we left off uh, in a pretty rough spot last week. You might want to say it felt like we left off in the sewer last week. And there's reason for that. The Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans. Uh, at, when he wrote it, it was a letter. He's writing it from Corinth to those who are in Rome. And basically what he's doing is he's giving us a deep understanding of what a great salvation that you and I have. So as we enter into this second chapter, sort of to prep our mind and get our juices running, um, we have to just really ask ourselves how great is our salvation in our mind? How amazing is it? How wonderful is our salvation? And Paul's goal in writing this book is to help us understand in a very deep way what our salvation means. And so we're calling the book of Romans, we're calling it grace. The title is grace of the whole book. And so in order for us to really understand God's grace, we have to understand our sinful condition before God. And that's how he starts. So he has the the introduction goes from chapter 1, verse 1 to uh, verse 17. And then he goes into from chapter 1, verse 18. He begins to talk about sin. And as he does that, it's a really good sort of way to understand the the outline of the book. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you an outline right now of the whole book. It'll be very helpful for you. So it starts with sin, and that's going to be something that is covered from chapter 1 in the book of Romans to chapter 3, verse 20. And then from Romans chapter 3, verse 21, to Romans chapter 5, verse 21, he talks about salvation. And then from Romans 6, 1, to Romans 8, 39, he talks about sanctification. And then from Romans 9, 1, to eleven thirty six, he talks about sovereignty And then from chapters 12, verse 1, to the end of the book, he talks about service. And so we're in the part where he's talking about sin. And man, it was rough last week. He's talking about the depravity of the human heart. Particular individuals he he was speaking about. And it's, it's those who are immoral. The immoral people who, although they knew God, they were neither thankful to God, nor did they glorify God. So, in other words, in their heart, God had written in their conscience a knowledge and an understanding 
of God, which He has done for everyone, that God made us with a, a conscience and a, a sense of eternity in our heart. And, and these particular people that were being addressed, they suppressed the truth, it says, in unrighteousness. So in other words, they didn't want to heed their, their conscience and also the understanding that they live in this world that was made by God, which speaks of God, screams of a maker, the creation speaks of a creator. And so these, those two things, their conscience and creation, are constantly testifying to God. And they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And then what happened was God gave them over to their desire for unrighteousness. What did that look like? Well, it explained what it looked like. And, and, and one of the explanations of what it looked like is he says that because of that, their denial of the truth, their suppression of the truth, they wanted to live by their lustful passions and unrighteous desires. They end up having a depraved mind. So their thoughts then became dark and it says futile. Their thinking wasn't right. Their actions then that came from that condition was that a biological female exchanged the created order that God had created between a biological female and a biological male, and they exchanged that created order and went after the unnatural created order of a female with the female sexually and then a biological male with the biological male also sexually. So it ended up in homosexuality, sexual sin, depraved mind. And then we finished the chapter with a, a list of a whole bunch of other sins to the point where you notice in chapter 1 at the very end, in verse 32, it says, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So, he also puts in this category of the immoral sinner. That those who may not do those things, but actually are approving of those things, or accepting of those things. Uh, in other words, they're maybe um, using those sort of things for their own personal entertainment, thinking, well, we don't do it, but they're watching those things, they're approving of those things, they're acknowledging those things, they're not condemning those things, but instead they're condoning those things. They're all also guilty of the same things. So that's where we left off. So now in chapter 2, we'll begin there. It says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, 
you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. So now he's talking about another category of sinners. This category of sinners that he's speaking of are moral sinners. They may look at chapter 1 people, the immoral sinners, and say, look at how bad and disgusting and evil those people are. And do you notice as I'm pointing at you, how many fingers are pointing back at me? A lot. More than's pointing at you. That's who he's talking to now. So you might have gone through chapter 1 and had the thing like, how could anybody do any of those things? I would never. And now he's addressing a person that would say that. He says in verse 2, he says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. That's very interesting. You, you really want to note that, mark that in your Bible, because what God is saying is that there is a certain condition that is deserving of judgment. And that condition is called unrighteousness or sin. And he's saying that it is deserving of judgment. And it's going to be measured by the truth. And do you know that we live in a time where Satan has manipulated the thought process of people so that people would think that there's no absolute truth, but truth is whatever each individual deems it to be based on their own personal experiences. So there's no wonder that that's happening because the Bible says that that we are going to be judged in accordance to our relationship with the truth. And he says, and do you think this, in verse 3, he says, do you think this, oh, I would say, uh, insert moral man. In other words, uh, a self-righteous man, one who thinks, I'm a good person. I'm not in that category of those immoral persons. I'm in a moral category on my own that I'm not like those people. And he's, now he's saying in verse 3, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you escape the judgment of God, he says, or do you despise the riches of His, of God's goodness, His forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He, he's saying that God hasn't struck those chapter 1 immoral sinners down like the chapter 2 moral sinners would want them to be. And he's saying that, that the reason he hasn't done that is because God is holding back the judgment that is due them 
because he's long-suffering and he wants them to repent. And so when these moral sinners say that those people are deserving of judgment and death, and they're saying that in a way that they're separating themselves from those people saying we are gooder than those sinners. So we are not deserving of death because we are gooder. I know that's not a word, but just to help us understand, they're bad, we're good, we're moral. We don't do those things, but he's saying that in many instances, they're participating in those things as well. Maybe it's by um, watching them or like the, the woman caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery with men who brought her to Jesus who were the ones committing adultery with her. And they wanted her to be condemned. Or like in Luke chapter 18, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, when they come to the temple together, the Pharisees praying at the temple, oh, thank you that I'm not like those other people. And then the Pharisee goes on and and prays, and he's praying, and he's saying that I'm not like them. I'm a righteous, upright man. I don't commit adultery. I don't commit extortion. I'm not unjust and in fact I actually tithe uh, everything I have and I fast twice a week and then the tax collector comes he, he wouldn't even lift his head to heaven and he cried out and said have mercy on me O God a sinner and it says it was the second man the the tax collector who was righteous before God because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's the acknowledgement of our own heart, no matter how outwardly we may conduct ourselves, it's the recognition and the realization of the sinfulness of our own heart. That's what's being said here. He says in verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the, the whole book of Romans begins with this understanding that there is judgment and that God is a righteous God. And this judgment will be just because it will be the fair treatment of sin that people are committing and he's saying to the moral person who is looking down at another sinner because there are they are a moral sinner still a sinner but they're more moral and they they have put themselves in a separate category and that category is that i'm a good person I'm not as bad as those really bad people. And God is saying, when a person is, is saying that, when they're saying that they're a good person, when they're saying that they're better than other people, they're, they're actually investing 
and more wrath that will happen on their judgment day. So they're putting in their, in their piggy bank every bit of their looking down at another sinner. Every bit of their self-righteousness is just adding to the penny bank of their judgment that will await them on judgment day. And then in verse 6, he says that God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. He puts every human being in the same category. And he says then that there is a judgment. And then he he talks about what kind of seems like a works-based righteousness. But what what he's saying is he's putting us all in this same category as he ends this sentence saying there's no partiality and that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the works that we do in order to gain acceptance from God are just as bad as bad works. The Bible says that all of our works of self-righteousness to try to be morally good before God are as filthy rags before Him. Trying to earn our favor with God and earn our entrance into heaven. And is he, He's saying that you could imagine these moral people feeling so offended because He first was saying these, these sinners in, that were so immoral in chapter 1, He's saying you're just like them. That may even rub us wrong today to think that we're in this same boat or the same category as people who do sins that we think are worse than other sins. He's painting this picture, and it's a dismal picture. We should feel just this dismal, hopeless condition because this is the reality of the situation that he's presenting. He says in verse, uh, in verse 12, he says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So he's talking to Jewish people who have the law, the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. And he's saying, well... You have the law and you're sinners, and then the Greeks or the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews, they didn't have the law like the Jews did, and they're sinners too. You're all in the same boat. For the Jew, that would again be very offensive. 
because now they would be put in the same category as, as those who they would deem as unclean, the Gentiles. They're in the same category. Now, very offensive. He says in verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of the law, or in the sight of God. But you got to read that word with me. Thank you. The doers of the law will be justified. This is so important. This is so heavy. Because those who had the law, the Jews, would think that they are good simply because they know the law and they have the law read to them. And many of them memorized the law and they, they thought that that would be the answer. And if I were to put that in an evangelical present time context, that could be like someone, there, do you know there, there are people, maybe some of you, that are just addicted to Bible study. You could be addicted to Bible study. And what I mean by that is, you, you just want to, like a pill, you take a Bible study to make yourself feel better over and over again and just listen to study after study after study. And the Bible says that our listening and hearing of the Bible study should, should be such where it causes action in our heart. So the, so the study that we can be addicted to, we just want to you know, listen to all these studies and go through all these studies and, and hear more. But if that doesn't take root in our heart to where there's action from that, so that, that we're actually doing these things, then we fall into the same category that, that we're, we're always learning. Paul says in a letter in another place, we're always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So we could just be addicted to the information and we have all, uh, favorite pastors and we have YouTube and all these different, and we just want to listen to them all the time, constantly, and our mind is just swelling with information. But the Bible says that knowledge puffs up and God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we, when we enter into the study of the Word, it should be such where the Word causes action in our heart, which looks like action in our feet and in our hands and in the things we do. Otherwise, we're just addicted to Bible studies. And we have to watch that. He's saying to the Jews... You have the law and you think just because you have the Word of God and you hear the Word of God and you memorize the Word of God, but yet your hearts are still stubborn and unrepentant. unrepentant. So the, the, your, just your constant listening and hearing and reciting the Word of God is, is actually causing you to store up more judgment where you're, for yourself because you're not responding to it. So in verse 14, he says, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, 
these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. In other words, there, there are certain things. So the simplest way to think about the law is just start with the Ten Commandments. That's where the law was initially given. So there are people who are not Jewish and they don't kill each other because the law says don't murder one, one another. So they're not killing each other. And there, there's something in them that God has sort of put in them to not kill each other. And so because they're not killing each other and they're fulfilling other parts of the law, and to the Jew, you have the law, but you're actually acting contrary to the law, then what does the law matter? What does it even mean? Right, so I could have a wedding ring on my finger that means something. But if I violate my wedding vows, what does that ring mean? Nothing. It's garbage. So you see what he's getting at? He's really hitting to the heart of these people that are, are counting on their heritage. They're Jewish. They're counting on that the Lord has given them and their, their nation, their, their race has given them the, the law. So in verse 15, he says, "...who show the work of the law written in their hearts." The Gentiles who don't do some of the things that are in the law. They have shown that there's something in their heart, a conscience, a, just a, a moral fabric that God has put in human beings. He says, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So he gives us a, another hint. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So now in Romans 2.16, he says something similar in regards to judgment that people will be judged according, he says, to my gospel. Paul says that, according to my gospel. Why do you say to my gospel? Because it's become his, because he's received it personally. This is a personal thing to him. And now, so he, now he's saying people will be judged according to the truth. The truth has been revealed to human beings in God's Word. And then he says this truth then is manifest in the Gospel. In other words, in what Christ has done for mankind in order to redeem mankind. And so all of judgment won't be according to what we do. It'll be according to to how we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's going to get into that more, but he keeps hinting at that. So he says, immoral sinner, you face judgment. Moral sinner, you face judgment. Now he starts to talk about the religious sinner. Do you know you could be a religious sinner? You could be the most religious 
person, what I, what I mean religious, doing outward religious things and be a filthy sinner, unrepentant on the inside. So now he deals with that. So in verse 17, third category of sinner, we got an immoral sinner, a moral sinner, and a religious sinner, still all sinners. And that's all that really matters. So he says, indeed, you are called a Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. In other words, especially the Pharisees, they, Jesus called them blind guides because they were making converts and leading them, he said, to hell. He was, he was, they were making them sons of hell because they were converting people to an outward conformity to religious standards and traditions. And he's, he's calling that out now. He says in verse 20 that an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge, forming just that outward, like a, a shadow or appearance of something without the substance, and the truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Do you remember Jesus when He came, He turned over the money changer's table there, ripping people off in the temple area. They were taking advantage of people who had want to come and give offerings to the Lord or want to worship God in the temple and they were extorting them and ripping people off. And they are doing it in the name of God. And these are the same people that the Lord would, would say they are so careful on how much they would tithe. They are so, much, so careful on tithing the exact amount that they would even take spices and divide the spices sort of like if you're going to tithe salt you would take every grain of salt and make sure well that's 10 percent of the salt that i got that i'm giving the same people that would go around in the marketplaces and they would be fasting and they would look terrible because they wanted everybody to see them and say, look how holy these people are. They're, they're fasting. Look, they look like they're on, on death's bed. They look terrible. And they, they would want people to see them like that. The same, same people that would make loud prayers in the marketplace. So people would say, oh, look, at, look how they pray. Look how amazing they are. And they would, they would give their their charitable giving, they would give that in front of people so people would think that how, how righteous they are. These, these are the same people. 
completely lacking in humility, desiring for other people to see them in this big, grand, holy way. And Jesus is saying, your heart is deceitfully wicked, that you're corrupt. And you're sitting there pointing your fingers at other corrupt people, while at the same time you're just as corrupt. And Jesus came to save them too. Jesus came to save the religious sinner. Maybe some of you were like that, coming out of a very stringent, legalistic, religious background. Thinking that your attendance at services and your education as a young person in religious things, earning awards and meeting goals and criteria, being knowledgeable about the things of the religion, even serving, and yet you are just as much of a sinner as the most wicked sinner that you would point your finger at and say, I'm not like that person. This is what Jesus is saying. Verse 22, he says, You who say, do not, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor or hate idols, do you rob temples? He says, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. So they ended up with their extreme outward religious piety They elevated traditions of men above the word of God. And many of these were the same people that would condemn Jesus for doing good works on the Sabbath because they saw the Sabbath as higher than having compassion on another human being. And Jesus is saying, your religion is not going to get you there. You're just like the sinner who is immoral. And so in verse 25, he continues with that that thought. He says, for circumcision, which is what the male Jews would do as a way to honor their heritage in Judaism. And this was a sign of cutting away the flesh to help them remember that they are to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. That was the whole point of circumcision. But they just took the act of circumcision and said doing that made them holy, not what it represented. So for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You know what that's like? It's it's amazing. I look back on the baptisms that we have done here at church over the years. And there are a lot of people that have been baptized and that aren't walking with the Lord anymore. And thinking that the fact that they got dunked underwater makes them okay with God. 
there are some that are counting on the fact that when they're a baby, that without their understanding or knowledge, somebody dunked them underwater because their parents took them to get dunked underwater, and they're counting on that, a certificate that they have that says, such and such, little Johnny was dunked in the water. And they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm good because I was dunked on the water. And I can live any way I want to live. And it doesn't matter. This is what it's talking about. These outward things that people are counting on to be right with God. It's the same thing. So he says in verse 26, he says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law. So you, you might want to underline that, righteous requirements. Because that's really the whole deal about what, what is being said. What are the righteous requirements for one to be right with God? He has righteous requirements. Why does he call them righteous requirements? Because they're, they're moral requirements. What would you say would be the, this is a rhetorical question, but what would, how good do you think a person would need to be to, to go to heaven? So this is the righteous requirement. So do I need to be kind of good? Little good, maybe 51% good, more good than bad. This is the way unsaved people often think, right? Have you come across this? Just counting on, well, generally I'm good. And, and this is what Paul is, is completely wiping out that thought. The righteous requirements are being morally perfect in thought in word and in action from the moment you take your first breath until the moment you take your last breath. That's the requirement. Perfection. What do you mean perfection? Well, the Bible uses the word sin as imperfection. So the righteous requirement would be to be sinless. What does the word sin actually mean? Where do we get that actual word? Well, it's an archery term. It's an archery term, and it means to hit, hit the bullseye, hit the mark. And when one in archery wouldn't hit the bullseye, the very center, when they wouldn't hit that, it would be called sin. So they would be sinful. They wouldn't hit the bullseye. So that's the requirement. This is what is being laid out by the Apostle Paul. So whether you're completely immoral, it's really obvious you're a sinner, or you're a moral sinner, which means you're filled with self-righteousness, or you're a religious sinner, it's all the same thing. So he says in verse 27, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law... Would he judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So you're circumcised, but you're not keeping the law perfectly. So what good is your circumcision? What good is your baptism if you're not truly born again? What good is your infant baptism? What good is these acts that you do? What, what good is the sinner's prayer that you said if you 
don't bear fruit from that if you're not truly born again? Are you counting on the fact that you went to a crusade and walked down the aisle, but you really didn't mean to follow the Lord? You got caught up in the moment? I actually served as a counselor at the Harvest Crusades for quite a while. You know the Harvest Crusades? Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusades? And I've been on the field. I remember one time my neighbor, I invited him, and he went. And the altar call comes, and he went down. I was so excited. And I'm like, so you receive the Lord. It's just this amazing scene, and Crystal Lewis is in the background singing these songs. Everybody's crying, thousands of people. And I'm like, that's so awesome, Aaron. You receive the Lord, right? And he's like, no, I just wanted to see what the field was like. Because it was at Anaheim Stadium. He just wanted to come. He just got caught up in the moment. He didn't want to get So, But he went down. That doesn't mean he's saved because he went down. At our baptisms, I remember one time we did a baptism and this young man comes in and, and I'm there and I'm, I'm saying, so you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, correct? He said, no. I said, okay, um, why'd you come down here then? <laughs> and everybody's watching, he's in the water and he said, my girlfriend told me to do it. So I said, do you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He said, no. I said, okay, let's just pray for you, and you need to understand, we're not going to baptize you. You have other problems. <laughs> you need to repent and receive Jesus. And this happens all the time. It this, I'm just giving you a couple examples. It happens all the time. For uh, Verse 28, it says, For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. This is what Paul is driving into the hearts of those who are listening. He's saying it's not about these outward things that we do. The even circumcision, even being a Jew, the whole point of being a Jew is one that you would be right with God on the inside. Not going through these rituals and ceremonies which were shadows of things that were to come. And the fulfillment of these things were Jesus Christ. So chapter 3. He says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? So he's saying now to the, the religious sinner, he's saying, so all these ceremonies and all the things that you've um, aligned yourself with and performed and did, he said, what advantage? Is there any advantage of being a Jew then? And the whole, the whole point of this. And then he says in verse 2, he says, in every way there's an advantage. And he says this, chiefly or mainly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. 
You know what he's saying? He says, if you're Jewish, here's your privilege. You, you are the ones that first got the word of God. So what does that tell us? Calvary Chapel, Flower Mound people who have the word of God in their hand or on their lap. What does that say to you? You have the word of God. And yes, it was committed to the Jews first, but here we are with the word of God in our hand. And what advantage, what profit is this that we have God's word in our hands? And so now he just begins to, to show and demonstrate what a blessing it is to have God's word, that God's Word is the truth, and God's Word is the light, and God's Word is the bread of life, and God's Word is the lamp into our feet, and, and we have God's Word. And it's a huge blessing and a huge benefit. So in verse 3, he says, For what if some did not believe? So here's our fourth category of people. This is the skeptic. So now what Paul is doing is using the Socratic method, which comes from Socrates. The rabbis would also use this. And they would, they would propose a question and then answer it. Probably these questions are questions that Paul was getting on his missionary journeys. And people would ask these things. So here's the question. In verse 3, what if, some, what if somebody didn't believe? So Paul, he's saying there's this truth, and this truth has been committed first to the Jews, but has been revealed in the Word of God. At that time, they just had the Old Testament, and then they had what Jesus did. Jesus was the Word. And then a skeptic would say, as Paul is saying, what would happen if, what, how would the truth be affected by someone who doesn't believe? So that's interesting because now we have a thought process of people thinking that what they think determines what is true. And this is being addressed here. So what this is doing and what Paul is going, going to answer is the fact that, that there is a truth, get this, that is outside of humanity. Truth is not within humanity, it's outside of humanity. It's, it has its source in God. It has its source in something that's outside of space, time, and matter. It has its source in something that's eternal, and so an individual's believing in it or not is what he's going to address. So what if some didn't believe? Well, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And he says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, for it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So he's saying truth is absolute and is not affected 
by how one receives it or responds to it. And that's really important to get into our understanding and in our biblical worldview because the, the idea and the thought of truth has been debated in philosophical circles from this time and even before this time. And in our day, this is the thing that is causing so much disruption in our society is the idea that there is no truth that is absolute and truth is dependent on the individual and what they think. And that makes it valid. And here Paul is saying, what you and I feel about the truth that is absolute has no effect on the truth. Just has an effect on us. It doesn't have an effect on the truth. So in verse 5, it says, but if our unright... So here, here's another sort of question people are saying, the skeptic is saying. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? He says, I speak as a man, meaning this is what people are saying. People are saying, this is kind of like if you teach grace and you have this teaching that all can be saved completely independent of our works, then people will say, well, aren't people just going to live terrible, sinful lives and say that they're saved? That's what's going on here. And that's what people are saying about Paul's teaching. They're, they're saying Paul's teaching this, this gospel of grace and, and nobody he doesn't care about people's morals after that. So it's like somebody saying, well... I'm saved, but I can live completely in darkness in a sinful life. And this is one of the questions that was being brought up. And he says in verse 6, he says, to answer that question, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? So he's saying that's not true because they're saying, well, God can't judge the world because if someone is unrighteous, then their unrighteousness should simply prove how righteous God is. So how can God judge an unrighteous person because an unrighteous person is actually contributing to the righteousness of God? So these are the conversations we get in with people. It's confusing. But he, he's, he's using these questions and the logic, and he's saying, look, God is a righteous God. And this righteous God in His gospel became sin in our place and has called people to receive the gospel apart or separate from their own works. And they are saying, well, if you do that, then people are just going to be sinful. You can't preach a gospel like that. You have to put the fear of God in them. Otherwise, people are going to live like animals. 
And he's saying that that sort of thinking is wrong. He says in verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And he says, And why not say, Let us do evil then, that good may come. As we are slanderously reported. So this is what they're saying about Paul. They're saying Paul teaches this doctrine where he says, do evil and it's okay to do evil because when you do evil, it just shows how good God is. Because God's willing to save you even though you're evil. And they're, they're saying, you have to be a good person to be saved. So it's kind of like how you can maybe get uncomfortable. If, you, if someone asks you, so are you saying that person on death row who, who killed 10 children, if they were to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they could get saved? And you're like, yes. And then that's offensive to them because their thinking is, well, I'm not as bad as that person. And they probably are correct, but they're still sinners. They're, they're just more moral sinners. They're still sinners. They're still in that category. Does that make sense? So they're still a sinner. They may be more moral. They may be more religious, but they're still sinners. And the, Paul is teaching this, and this is what happens now when you teach the gospel of grace. That it's not based on what you do. It's based on what he done. he has done and is for everybody. All can come to be saved by Jesus Christ. It's for everybody. And that offends people. Especially those who feel like, well, that's not fair because I've lived this very stringent religious life and that person lived a horrible life and you're telling me that they're on their deathbed and we'll be in heaven together? That's not fair. That's not right. And they're saying that because I'm a good person. But they don't realize how sinful they really are. So, where do we leave off? Are we in verse 8? So he says, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say this, their condemnation is just. So, okay, so here now we have this... This is the closing arguments of the sin section. This started in chapter 1, verse 18. So now Paul has dealt with all those different categories of sinners. And he's basically saying, no matter what one does outwardly, it doesn't matter if you're still in your sins. Here's his closing arguments. There's 14 points that he makes in his closing arguments. So he says in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all, notice that word, circle that, all what? All under sin. As it is written, 
There is none righteous, no, not one. Do you remember the righteous requirements that one must meet? That has been expressed by Paul. You have to meet these righteous requirements. What are the righteous requirements? Perfection. Paul is painting this picture that nobody meets those righteous requirements. He says there's none who even understands. There's none who even seeks after God. They all, notice that word, all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. The human kind is all in the same boat. It's the sin Mary, like the Queen Mary, but the sin Mary. We're on that same boat. There is none who does good. No, not one. Do you think he's trying to make it clear? Their throat is an open tomb. What does that mean? Well, think about an open tomb. What would that be like? If you went to a cemetery and there's a tomb there and it was open for a long time, what would that be like? It'd be pretty bad, right? He's saying their throat's like that, meaning that's what's coming out of them. If they're moral, their throat is an open tomb. If they're religious, their throat is an open tomb. It doesn't matter. He says uh, they have practiced deceit. Their po- the poison of asps, which is a snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is an explanation of mankind. And if you look at the history of mankind, it's not a beautiful history. This is what we see from the history of mankind, whether biblical or in, in the history of our world. That's what it looks like. And so in verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become what? Guilty before God. So we may not be guilty before one another. right? We may be measuring ourselves and comparing ourselves to one another and thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that person. And another person is saying about you, I'm not as bad as that person. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because it's between each individual and God. And because of what Paul has been saying, we're in bad shape in God's estimation. Because the standard is not the person next to you. The standard is God. That's what we are to measure ourselves against. A perfect, holy God. In order to be accepted by a perfect, holy God, you and I need to be perfect and holy. And so Paul makes this case of trying to get us all to understand that there is no way possible that we can meet those righteous requirements verse 20 therefore 
By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there you go. So what's the law? What's the Ten Commandments and the the laws that have come from that? That we've seen in the Old Testament. The whole point of the law is to show us that we can't keep the law. It's to show us that we are sinners. That's the point of the law. So the law can't make one righteous. That's the point. The law can't make one right before God. I'm so glad we got to verse 21. Because those first two words in verse 21 are the most beautiful two words I've ever heard. But now. Everything we just talked about doesn't matter anymore because of what he's going to say now. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament. They talked about this time that would come where there would be a righteousness that man would be able to have, and it wouldn't be in the law. The law just told us we were not righteous. In verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, there it is. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God to all and on all who, what? Believe. Believe. For there is no difference. That should be a huge relief because those righteous requirements were actually fulfilled by someone who took our place. That was why Jesus came. That was the whole purpose of of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and raising again from the dead because he met those righteous requirements. And because of that, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified. What does that mean? So, Imagine being in a courtroom and you are are as guilty as sin and you're going to face the death penalty. And the gavel goes down and hits and makes that noise and the judge says a declaration. That's what this means, justified. The judge is declaring something. And the word justified is a legal term that means 
that you are no longer responsible for what you did. It doesn't mean you didn't do it. It means you're no longer responsible for it. And not only that, it means that you will be treated as one who has never done it. A good way to think about that, I know a lot of you know this, but it's just as if I'd never done it, justified. So all of your sin, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if you had never sinned before. You, In God's eyes, you have been justified, declared righteous, the gravel goes, gavel goes down, and now you're going to be treated as a righteous person. What does that mean? You're going to be treated as a sinless person by God. Justified. And then he says we're justified freely. What does that mean? It means that it doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't mean it's not costly. It means it doesn't cost us anything. That same word is used in John 15, 25, and it's without cause. So we didn't do anything to cause our justification. It was freely given. And then it says, by grace, meaning unearned unmerited, completely separate from anything that we have done to deserve it. And then he says, through redemption. And that's a term that would be used at a slave market when someone would buy a slave, pay the price of a slave to set them free. He's using all these terms to help us understand what has transpired in our salvation. And then he says, that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation. So you guys are becoming theologians tonight. That word propitiation is amazing. And it was used as a term of sacrifice to appease the gods, the wrath of the gods. This word propitiation in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, is the same word that's used for the mercy seat, the seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant, where the failures of the nation of Israel were buried underneath, inside that box, under the mercy seat, their failures, the Aaron's rod that budded, the Ten Commandments that they broke, and the jar of manna that were in there, and, the, and their, their failures, those were all their failures. They were covered over the mercy seat, and it was on the mercy seat that a blood of an animal would be applied to the mercy seat, and that's the only place that anybody could ever meet with God. It is all a picture of Jesus being our propitiation so that we meet with God through the sacrifice and the appeasement of God's wrath that was taken by Jesus on the cross. He says, by His blood... We're almost finished, don't worry. I know it's, it's a little past. By His blood, through faith, to demonstrate 
His righteousness because in His forbearance, not giving us what we deserve, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we get the whole thing given to us, not by anything we do, simply by putting our faith in what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. Where, in verse 27, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Man, you guys need, you, got, you have to have that highlighted in your Bible. That's the whole deal right there. I'm so happy. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified or made right with God by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It doesn't matter. It's by faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, Christ didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled the law for us. So guys, you're on the mountaintop of God's goodness and mercy and love. What shall we say then? If God be for us, who could be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word. I thank you that these truths have been preserved for us. And I pray that these truths would be embedded in our heart, that things would click in our heart and our mind as towards the gospel and what you've done for us and how saved we are the moment that we put our faith in you, that we are completely, 100%, forever, eternally saved because of what you've done and nothing because of what we've done. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man boast and praise to you, God. And we pray this all together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you made it. God bless you guys. We'll pick it up next week in chapter 4, and we'll talk more about salvation, which is good. We'll look at that. So have a good night, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.